Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I will talk with Jeff Krause, CEO of Candela Medical and my lifelong karate brother. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and this is a special pleasure for me to welcome Jeff Krause. Jeff is a turnaround CEO. Um, he is a great client of mine and also a dear friend. Uh, I've known Jeff since he was 12 and I was 16. Um, we're longtime karate buddies. Jeff is a, 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 an accomplished karate master, a world-class athlete, and one of the most impressive leaders I've ever had the great pleasure of working with. Um, he is currently the CEO of Candela Medical, a laser company. And I will say welcome, Jeff Krause, to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you very much for having me today. Um, hey, so tell uh, the crowd here, the listeners, our listeners, uh, how did you get to where you are? I mean, I've given a super executive summary, but along the way, uh, you've done so many things. You have such an interesting path uh, that took you through uh, Okinawa and to um, graduate school where you got uh, – couple of master's degrees. And so you're, you're, um, you've been around the block a few times and around the world a few times before you came into the corporate world. Uh, but tell your story, however you, uh, however you like to tell it. Well, I'll do my best, Bruce. I think, you know, a lot of my path actually does have to do with my, uh, early exposure to and lifelong pursuit of, uh, the martial arts and Weichu Karate. I, I think that has taught me over the years that uh, the pursuit of excellence is a lifetime pursuit. Uh, and there's always room for improvement uh, and there's always somebody out there that is stronger and better than you that you can learn from. I, you know, I really became enamored with the idea of uh, long-term uh, mentorship and apprenticeship uh, when I went to Okinawa for the first time as a 16-year-old boy and decided at that time I needed to learn Japanese and I really needed to understand the culture and the ethos of uh, the arts, uh, the Japanese arts and the martial arts in particular. And I think as that translated into my professional career, I, that I took a very similar approach and always looking for a sensei, uh, someone who could mentor me uh, that I could learn from and continue to improve my skills. Uh, and my professional career has been a continued pursuit uh, along those along those lines. You know, there's always always people out there that have a depth and breadth of experience, uh, emotional centering, uh, a strength that you can learn from. Uh, and continue to improve yourself. There, the, you know that that pursuit. There really is no end game in sight. It's just a pursuit of of continuous growth. And how much of that continuous growth um, is about your own mind, body, spirit, 
And at what point did you start to focus on making a contribution to others? Because I know that's central to your uh, values. Yeah, I think that it came in, in, you know, for me, the two areas where I try to do that again, professionally and in the martial arts, I think it started at a much younger uh, age in the martial arts, you know, where I uh, Probably by the time I returned from Okinawa as an adult in my mid-20s, I had acquired the skills that I could really give back to other practitioners of the art. Professionally, it took a lot longer. Um, you know, there's, there is a pursuit of uh, financial independence. There is skills and credibility uh, that I didn't really start to build upon until even my early 30s, uh, actually, professionally. Uh, and so I think it's really been uh, as my first CEO position, which was a private equity-backed company uh, called CBR, I built a great team there and really saw that as a leader, there was an opportunity to mentor and give back in ways that I hadn't realized uh, as a professional. And that was, that was in 2012? Yeah, that's right. In 2012, when you're uh, that you became a CEO for the first time, um, and uh, you say a private equity backed venture, so meaning that uh, private investors came in, uh, bought this company uh, that had been led by uh, uh, what I like to call a genius founder, Tom Moore, um, and uh, and then you uh, were a young CEO came in. Um, and found a lot of work to be done uh, to transform that business, as I recall. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. It was a, a, a brilliant founder had been running the business for twenty plus years, and it was uh, at, you know in many ways a turnaround uh, from a sort of commercial and marketing perspective, and you know that provided the opportunity to put in place a new team of professionals to look at the problems with a fresh set of eyes and come up with different solutions to drive the business forward. Uh, and that was a, a real opportunity to uh, build a team of professionals around me that I felt I could learn from and also uh, provide the opportunity back to them and you know other members of the organization to, to grow and expand. And I think you know, that turned out to be uh, successful. And um, when it came time to potentially do another one, the main uh, motivator for me was being able to build a team again and uh, build uh, or give people the opportunity to expand their careers, uh, grow themselves professionally uh, and find new opportunities. That was really the motivator for me to come back and uh, do Candela Medical, uh, which I entered. You know, we, it was a public company that we took private with a new set of investors. That was July 2017 when you took it private. Exactly. And you're still running. You're and you're currently the CEO of that business. That is correct. And, and I love what you say that it was a chance to bring in another team. And, you know, because I had the tremendous privilege of being part of both of those uh, parts of your journey, um, I know that you, you went out and recruited uh, some of the people whom you had worked with um, at CBR 
some of whom had come in in more junior roles, some of whom you had sort of grown into more mature executives. And then you went out and asked them if they wanted to leave what they were doing and come join you um, in this new venture. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I was uh, thrilled and honored that uh, I, a lot of them jumped right on board and said they would uh, enjoy the opportunity to work together again. And, uh, you know, I think that says a lot about um, them and me in terms of the similarity of approach, you know, working hard together, uh, working with integrity, uh, building an environment of trust uh, and setting to work to get the job done. Well, I think it says a huge amount about you. Um, I know you, of course, very, very well, and I know some of them well. Um, and I know what what they've had to say about uh, the opportunity to work with you on multiple occasions. Um, and I don't think it's just that in three years in the previous venture, you doubled your investors' money, although that, that can't hurt. But what is it about you that you think attracts people? Uh, I will share with others what I always say to you is that you're you're um, you're such a natural leader. People gravitate to you and they want to follow you. Um, and and you have that rare thing that I call natural leadership, that infectious charisma that people want to follow you. Why? In your view, what, what, what do you make of that? Well, first, thank you. And I'm, I'm humbled. I think uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, tie it back to the training and upbringing in the martial arts, which if you really are a dedicated practitioner of the arts, you learn two things, humility and quiet confidence. And I think too often when people rise to the C-suite uh, or become a chief executive officer, that uh, comes with a confidence that can be viewed as or often is arrogance. And I think it's important as leaders that we lead first and foremost uh, from a place of humility and servitude. Um, and I think it's incredibly important that we understand that there are always opportunities to learn. And regardless of where somebody sits in the organizational hierarchy, regardless of age or education, uh, they have something that you can learn from. Um, and I think that is fundamentally it, humility and quiet confidence. When you say that's so interesting, because, you know, of course, uh, we've spent a lot of time together and I know, uh, I, I wasn't sure what you were going to say, but but I know you sometimes describe yourself as I'm, I'm just here observing, taking it all in. Is that, um, is that the effect or is that how it manifests or is, is that, uh, it, it sounds, it seems like that's part of the same, uh, equation. I think it is part of the same equation and some of it is learning. You know, I think in my first CEO job, if you were to interview the folks that worked with me, worked for me, I, they would tell you that I had a tendency to roll up my sleeves and get involved in things that I shouldn't. Um, and that comes from a desire to enact change, to drive things forward. And over time, you learn that there's a nuance to doing that properly and doing it well in leadership, which is, you know, 
Churchillian, in effect, that your fundamental job is to empower uh, your lieutenants, make very clear what their responsibility uh, and requirements of success are, and then do everything you can to empower and clear the runway for that success. So that's a nuanced learning that I think I've had uh, now going into you know my seventh or eighth year as a as a CEO. Um, but that also you know that's when you make the statement that I'm just here observing. That is often what I'm doing. I'm just trying to observe and learn and not be trigger happy on um, trying to solve the problem or make the decision, right? Really enabling and empowering the leaders within the organization and the organization itself to make those decisions. And, and I think that is, you know, an expression of, of humility and, and confidence, uh, not just in myself, but in the others around me and their capabilities and intelligence to, to make great decisions and make things happen. Yeah. And I, I, I want to explore this a little bit more because first, let me say, um, I would never describe you as just sitting back and observing, although I've heard you describe yourself that way. Um, and I, but, and I'm wondering if it's, you know, that, that's sort of, um, uh, a way of embodying the humility, um, and, um, uh, and quiet confidence. And, um, you know, you're a very direct person, if I may say so. Um, and when you, and, and you're very good at making decisions, in my opinion. Um, and when you do make those decisions, you make them very, very clear. Um, and in fact, you often use words that uh, give me goosebumps because <clears throat> I've written books where I have whole chapters about this, but where you say, um, my expectation is, and blank, you actually say those words. Uh, but I have noticed that as you've matured as a leader, you're less quick to make a decision. And, um, and so that's what I was, I was trying to explore that uh, and, and trying to understand it myself. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm also very fortunate is that uh, the people that I've worked with uh, in my, you know, in the organization at CBR and now at Candela, as you mentioned, you know, the many Many of those key leaders and contributors have come back to join us for the second round. And I've really tried to uh, develop an environment of trust and mutual learning. And so I get feedback uh, from my leaders. And that was you know, a key point of feedback from CBR. And I encourage them to give me that feedback as well as if they see me jumping in to areas where I shouldn't or they feel that my actions or rapid decision-making or attempt to drive clarity are undermining their authority as a leader or their ability to lead their organization. And I, and I try to be careful of that. And I always say to people that, you know, this is the direction I want to go. This is the decision I think we should make. Are we agreed? Uh, and if yes, great, go forth and conquer. If no, let's discuss and get that alignment. And I think that that extra investment and alignment across the leadership team on those decisions is is really important, especially in a you know a turnaround situation or a rapid growth situation or you know a situation that every business is dealing with today. You know the challenges of disruption, you know from the COVID and macroeconomic environment. You know businesses move so quickly on a global scale now that 
one individual in a command and control situation. I think you taught me this, actually. It's the illusion of command and control, but it isn't necessarily control. It's just command. Uh, so, you know, I think I think it's just really important to dissipate or what's diffuse can have a negative connotation, right? Because it's not taking responsibility. That's not the objective. The objective is to put the responsibility in the right parts of the organization at the right level uh, to allow the organization to adapt to rapidly changing environments and be nimble uh, while being in control. Yeah, right. And you've navigated now um, uh, this medical laser company through uh, this COVID crisis. And uh, because of the nature of the lasers you guys make, um, uh, a lot of the treatments are cosmetic or might not be considered um, necessary, just like a lot of optional surgeries were postponed. Um, it definitely had an effect on on your business, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the market as a whole, you know, is uh, incredibly uh, healthy for aesthetic treatments uh, and, you know, optional medical treatments that we provide the equipment for. So, you know, in the aggregate or the long term, it remains very healthy, but the short term impact, and I'm sure our business is not alone and I'm not the only CEO with these uh, incredible challenges that have been brought on us by COVID, uh, but there was, you know, significant disruption uh, to the business, you know, across multiple areas, you know, with our customers, our supply chains, et cetera, it was, you know, frankly, the most uh, challenging business environment that I've ever had to navigate. And, you know, I, I don't even think there's too many men, I don't know of any mentors that I can go to and say, Hey, what do you do during a global pandemic? Uh, you know, this is a, this is a new uh, phenomenon and certainly one that has extended, uh, you know, globally. And for the time frame that we've been dealing with, it's been incredibly challenging, but. Yeah, because your, your business is all over the world and it's not like you have somebody who, oh, oh yeah, here's one of my mentors, the one who led a company through the 1918 pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, all uh, business leaders, investors, uh, you know, politicians, economists, we're all trying to figure this out in a, in a world of many, many unknowns. You know, what I was going to say about the business disruptions that we've experienced in 2020 is that they were, uh, you know, most certainly the the most difficult period of my professional career. Uh, but it also really forced me to focus more on the criticality and the importance of leadership because you realize at times like this, that you're not just building a business and driving it to success. You also have in your hands the livelihood of thousands of people and their families. And the way you navigate that to ensure the business is financially viable and ongoing while you make the critical and often gut-wrenching decisions on what you have to do, um, it just teaches you that leadership matters. You know, it really matters a lot uh, all the time and especially during times of crises. 
Yeah, it really matters all the time. And here, you know, this is what people do to feed their families. You have all these uh, people who are counting on you, um, hoping, of course, that they're not among the ones who lose their jobs because you are trying to pursue the greatest good for the greatest number of people um, and keep the whole enterprise uh, healthy. Uh, but, you know, then you're trying to keep this whole enterprise healthy uh, uh, and get it to the other side of this crisis with as many of those people on board as possible. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. That's the the challenge, uh, you know, of business leadership. Uh, and I think, you know, that's another area where humility and quiet confidence and integrity uh, really matter. Uh, you know, and I think that more leaders today uh, need to view it from that lens of, you know, it's not about me self-enriching or self-empowering, uh, but once you've achieved a level of, you know, uh, professional success, that uh, it's really critical that you turn your lens towards the true job at hand, which is guiding the organization uh, and guiding uh, folks that are counting on you. Yeah. And lifting other people up and uh, making them better, which is something you're uh, really um, great at doing, in my opinion. And I think that um, I think a lot of that does tie back to your uh, role as a, as a martial artist and, and as a teacher of martial arts. But I want to bring this uh, all the way around because, of course, there's nothing like a global pandemic, meaning, you know, forces um, that feel without meaning to have a uh, religious implication, but almost like an act of God. I mean, it's so much out of our control. It's so much only how we can respond and navigate through this, right? It's that, that's, that's what's going on here. How do we navigate through this real storm of... Uh, epic proportions. Um, and so there, nothing like that to strengthen one's feeling of humility. And I think people uh, really uh, have been looking in all directions and in all realms of their life uh, for leadership through this time in our families. We look for that, um, you know, maybe in our communities, we look for that and at work, which is uh, such a huge, important part of people's lives. Everyone's looking for that. And um, you have the kind of, um, leadership, I think that, you know, people know you're not afraid to make decisions. Um, how were you able to, you're, you're talking about aggregating the input from your lieutenants um, so that you're um, making better decisions, making decisions with greater due diligence. Um, how did that, how, how did that guide you during this crisis? Well, you know, during the, during this crisis, the I first thing was to get a common understanding of the severity of the crises and the uh, financial potential financial impact to the business across multiple scenarios, which were essentially unknowable. Uh, and then getting alignment with the team around, uh, we probably needed to consider the worst case scenario of the ones that we developed <clears throat> and respond uh, accordingly uh, to manage that. And essentially we were looking at, you know, potential significant declines 
in revenue. And so we first aligned around that scenario and what would need to be done to manage our operating expenses in terms of you know project spend, consultant spend, and unfortunately, uh, headcount spend uh, to right-size the organization for the scenario that we were looking at. And once we had that alignment, we were able to have the discussions around, okay, well, what do we need to do? Uh, and once that information was in, there was alignment around the why, if you will, uh, why this needed to be done. And because there was alignment and understanding around the why, uh, the leaders through the organization were able to execute very rapidly, you know, in the March, April timeframe to make the changes that needed to be made. And, you know, we were, we were basically able to, to adapt very quickly. But I think fundamentally the, the decision-making around that is, ensuring that there is a common understanding of the situation uh, and then people understand why decisions are being made. And if they understand why those decisions are being made, they can get behind them and execute them and uh, move forward effectively versus if they don't understand the scenario and the why, people lose all sense of control and empowerment. And so that's maybe the balancing act or the tightrope that you're walking along as a leader in those types of crises situations is to make sure that you bring as many people along in the understanding of the situation and the why things are being done so that so that it can get done. Yeah, because, you know, you use the, the, the term alignment, which is uh, one of my favorite uh, concepts in trying to think about leadership in a large complex organization, which, you know, you've got a lot of people all over the world uh, doing serious business. And so it's a, a large complex organization to keep aligned up, down, sideways and diagonal. And um, so you had to establish a common understanding of the severity of the situation so that people would understand uh, that there was going to be serious cost cutting, which is loss um, in people's budgets and, and sometimes in their staffs and their, who, to whom they can turn for support. And then, um, uh, getting a clear picture, you said of why, and I assume not just the why of the, the, the crisis and the need to cut, but also remembering the why of the business and the mission of the business and how we're going to get the business through and then, uh, uh, rapid fire execution. But, you know, in, I think about a military organization or a medical uh, emergency situation or other public safety situations where, you know, people really deal with crisis. You know, one way is to put, is to make decisions, um, and push them down through the chain of command. Um, and what I, what I want to, uh, explore here is it sounds like you, um, did an especially good job here of bringing information up from the ground level, up from, from the front lines. Um, and so the alignment wasn't just one way. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We, we spent a lot of time actually putting in place um, leading indicators on the health of the market and our customer behavior that was being gathered by, you know, frontline uh, staff, right? 
salespeople, service people, uh, marketing people that are very closely attuned to our customers and their the competitive landscape and what's going on. And so it was a a bottoms up kind of approach to the information that was out there. And you know the other thing is is that each market reacted differently. Right. If you're a global business, Asia is responding very differently than Europe and is responding very differently than the U.S. And so you had to be in a situation to be able to gather that information to make the right decisions at the right time uh, in the right place. So it really was not a one size fits all scenario. And so you had to have that granularity uh, of information to be able to make good decisions. So would this be an extreme example um, of what you often say about a large, running a large complex organization is a lot like conducting um, uh, an orchestra of, of, of lots of different talented people because the organization has to be so good at so many things and understand so many things that are so different going on all over the organization all at once. This must have been a heck of an example of that. Absolutely. Absolutely right. The... Um you know, to, to continue with the orchestra metaphor, your, your spidey senses around your hearing, uh, and really listening, uh, was a critical part of the success, right? Too often we want to, you know, to go back to what we discussed previously, we, we want to jump to a decision or in the feeling of, of, of a need for urgency, act now, act now versus really listening to what's happening around you and trying to make very prudent decisions. And similarly, you know, when people's livelihoods are at stake, you want to be as careful as you possibly can be. And we were still able to do those, make those tough decisions, you know, in a 30, 45 day type of time frame. I think that's really important in a crisis situation. There's a, you know, again, a tendency to uh, let ego get in the way or think you've got all the answers and make fast decisions that could severely negatively impact people that you don't have to. And so being able to take a few deep breaths, you know, center yourself, really think through the situation and, and try to make the best decisions possible is a, is a time investment that's worth its weight in gold. Yeah. And it can be uh, ego and hero complex. And I'm going to be the solution. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to come solve this problem. And of course, there's a sense of panic. And so urgency. Um, but say more about that, the the taking a little extra time, even in an urgent situation um, where, where there's there's true urgency, not false urgency, true urgency, uh, but taking the extra time to make the right decisions. Again, I think the the key component here is even when it feels like it's true urgency as you describe it, true urgency doesn't necessarily mean I need to make a decision in the next 30 seconds. What it means is I need to make the best possible decision I can and I need to do it relatively quickly relative being the important part there. And so the question is, is it 30 seconds? Is it 48 hours? Is it a week? You know, how much time do I really have? Um, and balancing 
accuracy and timing of that decision in a crisis situation. And I, I think it's easy for people to hit the panic button uh, and try to make decisions more quickly than they necessarily need to be made. And again, being able to step back and take a couple of breaths and say, you know, what are the consequences here? Are we really ready to make, you know, some of these big decisions? And what is the value, the incremental value that gets created by uh, having the alignment discussion and making sure that we as a team are making the best possible decision and we agree on that decision because that upfront investment in time will substantially pay back in terms of speed of execution, right? You can make a decision at the top of the organization. If you don't have that alignment, you will see all kinds of issues in execution that will cost you substantially more time than, you know, the relatively, generally relatively small amount of time that it takes to have that alignment discussion and really get people on board, then the organization can execute efficiently. So you have the virtue, not just of, well, not wasting time, energy, and resources going in the wrong direction for a while. So you have to turn around and come back, uh, but also the virtue of better planning and also the virtue of um, getting people's commitment and understanding um, so that when you do start executing, uh, people are all moving together in the right direction. Exactly right. Yeah. So how, how important was it to you in this crisis? I mean, you know, imagine yourself um, uh, seven years ago uh, when you were one year into your uh, first CEO role. Um, and, 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 and there are two dimensions I want to explore. One is um, your level of experience as a CEO then, do you see a difference in being able to respond to this crisis now than say seven years ago? And two, the importance of having surrounded yourself with uh, this team of lieutenants uh, whom you've uh, cultivated and um, with whom you uh, have such a comfortable working dynamic. Um, you know, would it have played out differently for you as a leader seven years ago? Oh, most definitely. Yes. You know, I think experience and uh, the focus on continuous learning and improving that seven years uh, was an incredibly vital time frame to my leadership maturity, if you will. I think, you know, if I were reflecting honestly, uh, you know, as a young 40s CEO in that situation, I, I, I frankly think I would have hit the panic button uh, and tried to come in and be the superhero and, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, do this, you know, uh, and start barking out orders um, that would probably, you know, have led to a disastrous situation. Just for the record, you made great decisions seven years ago, so I'm not so sure they would have led to disastrous outcomes, but I, I can picture a different style. Um, and how much of that is because of your learning to make decisions and take action differently? And how much of it is because of your uh, skill at assembling the right people around you? Well, you know, I think it, I think it's both. I, 
but as a leader, the way you respond to situations not only has an effect on the outcome for sure, but frankly, it also has a, a an effect on the type of people that will want to be on your team. Uh, and so, you know, the, the two are very closely related. You know, I think that again, it's it's about always learning and coming at it from a place of humility where you're saying, what can I do better? What areas of knowledge am I missing that I can build upon to try to do a better job to support my team and help them to be successful? Um, and I think, you know, you asked that question, how would it have been different? I think, it, you know, in 2012, 13 timeframe, you would have had a leader that was, you know, had seven years, eight years less experience. Uh, and that experience has been, uh, you know, really helpful for me in the sense that uh, never having had to respond to a crisis the size of a global pandemic, uh, I had had to respond to, you know, multiple business crises and learned the difference between uh, fast decision and slow execution versus um, thoughtful decision and extremely fast execution. Uh, and that was the fundamental difference that that played out here. And I think that is experience, individual maturity, and to your point, the skills, capabilities, and trust uh, of the team that we have put together. Yeah. Now, one of those lieutenants uh, was a guest on an earlier podcast, um, Mary Trout, and uh, she was with you in both enterprises. Um, and um, one of the reasons that I, I wanted to interview her earlier so that people could get to know her by listening to her her point of view, what is it that makes Mary the kind of person you want to have on your team? Well, she's uh, very accountable in terms of she wants to know what am I responsible for? What are you holding me accountable to get done? Uh, and she drives for that clarity uh, and then focuses on the execution. I think similar to me, she's very focused on building a team of people who are uh, capable and driven and uh, work in that same manner, right? To understand what they're accountable for and then execute. And she's very good at, at drawing those lines of clarity with her people and her team around what is their, what are they accountable for and what does she expect of them um, to really drive that business performance. In general, what what is it that makes somebody, someone you feel you can look up to, or if not look up to, somebody you admire, somebody you, I mean, what 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 makes somebody a person um, who who wins your respect and uh, makes you want to learn from them? You know, the the fundamental thing that I look for in a mentor is integrity, and that doesn't mean that they always make the right decisions. We all make bad decisions. We, we probably make, you know, one bad decision for every good decision we make. 
all of us uh, struggle with that. But you can tell the people that I want to learn from anyway, I look for, are they really, truly trying to make the best possible decisions uh, for the people around them, for the organization, you know, for society as a whole? Uh, do they really focus on doing the right thing uh, to the best of their capability? That's the people I want to learn from. Um, so sort of uh, the long game of integrity. Absolutely. And what's your answer to this question? It's, you know, one of the puzzles I've been trying to unlock is if the long game of integrity is about the decisions you make over time, the, the, the outcomes that, that prove out over time, um, reputation is something that happens over time, right? But, but you can only act in the moment. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it's a puzzle, uh, that, that's simpler than it sounds, but it, it's something that, that I'm always thinking about that, you know, it, you're playing the long game, but you have to play it one moment at a time. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think that's exactly right. But I think often people will say things like your reputation is all that you have, or, you know, the relationships are matter. And to me, those in a way, belittle the long game of integrity in the sense that it's not about what the people around you think. It's more about centering yourself and trying, thinking through and doing the everything you can to the best of your ability to make good, sound decisions for the right reasons. That's integrity. And if you do that, the other components of your reputation, the relationships you have, et cetera, they will come. They, they will be a natural byproduct of the effort to lead with integrity. Um, but then what happens? And so over time, right, you can start to, if you surround yourself with the same people, if you've got the same troops, right, uh, your troops know you, they, they know who you are as a leader. But then what about people who uh, either, you know, they, they lose their job or they make a change and they go into a situation where, where they're not known? Where people don't say, oh, well, you know, that's Jeff, of course, you know. So, uh, but, so how do you make that impression quickly? I don't think you need to. I think you come in and you do what you do uh, and people very quickly understand and sense it. You know, that's another thing that I think often we try to put up a big poster board that says, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm going to lead with integrity. I'm going to do the best to make the best decisions for, for this organization. Uh, and it's all meaningless. I mean, what people can sense very quickly where other people are coming from and how they make decisions and think about the people around them, the respect that they show for the people around them, you know, the diversity of opinion, the valuable skills that every individual in an organization brings to the table, regardless of hierarchy, position, education. If a leader comes in and shows that deference, that mutual respect of the people 
that they are in the boat with, uh, the organization very quickly understands that. There's challenges. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people lose faith or confidence, in, you know, in certain points in time. Uh, but, you know, if you continue down the path of just working your darndest to do the right thing, uh, people understand that and they cling to it and they follow it because they want to do the right thing too. Yeah. And I, I, I love what you're saying because, you know, private equity has a reputation uh, among some as, you know, being the sort of voracious uh, capitalists who will come in and turn an organization upside down and inside out and milk it for every nickel uh, for the investors. And so that's how some people look at private equity. Some people look at private equity and say, oh, you know, we were on, on the edge of uh, uh, bankruptcy or we were on the edge of irrelevance as a business. And, you know, now these we, we've got new uh, an influx of money and, uh, and talent uh, and these guys are going to save us. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, there are both kinds of creatures in the world of private equity. One of the things I love about working with you is you always go into a business when you think you can make a, 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 a real positive impact on the, on the value and health and well-being, uh, and ultimately the value for the investors, but the health and well-being and proper functioning of the business. So when you come in, there is a lot of hope. Uh, about what you are bringing to the table and you're almost in a rescuing situation. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there's, there's definitely both uh, sides to that story around private equity and sometimes the same story, you know, both sides of that story happen within one company. You have to make, you know, tough decisions and turn things inside out in order to regain the health and move it forward. And, you know, it comes in all different, all different flavors, but uh, all business really uh, is about managing the interest of your customers, your employees, and your investors. And how you balance those interests is what's critical to good, sound decision-making. Um, and they are often at odds, uh, but they're often uh, working in tandem. Right. If you can deliver great value to your customers, your employees are proud of that. The business does well. And then your investors are happy, too. I don't like people to get the wrong idea that private equity is only one one picture. Yeah. Look, I, I think a lot of people uh, some of that is also a hangover, you know, from decades ago. But, you know, private equity is a part of our dynamic global capital markets, right? So you got public markets, private markets, growth investors. It's, it's all part of the system that, you know, works to build businesses. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your shareholder base is. Everybody's interested in building the business uh, and driving uh, or creating long-term value and long-term success. You know, Candela is a great example. It's uh, along with myself turning 50 years old, in 2020. So, so that's a good segue to uh, my final question because um, you are 10 days shy of 50 years old as we speak. Somebody looking at you and saying, geez, look at this guy. You know, he's, he's um, uh, only 50 years old and um, he's running this, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars company and thousand employees all over the world. And, you know, is a, a world-class athlete and a 
a great karate master, speaks Japanese and has a beautiful uh, wife and a gorgeous family of children who uh, seem almost too good to be true. Uh, and a dog who's about as cute and smart as any, do- I mean, it's, 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 it's almost too good. Like how, so, so people look at a guy like you and they say, how do I get to be like you? Well, I will say that I have been, uh, incredibly blessed and I, I have throughout my life, i been able to find, uh, teachers and mentors that have helped me to develop and grow. Uh, and so I actually think that's, that's the advice that I would provide is to find those mentors through your life. And, you know, sometimes you outgrow mentors, you know, you might have a mentor that really provides a lot and helps you through a three year period of your life. And I don't know, you look back and you say, gosh, yeah, I've, uh, catapulted past that mentor. And that doesn't mean that you're not thankful and grateful for the time they gave you, but you are now, you know, moving on to learn more from a different individual. And some mentors stay with you your entire life. But I think that that's the fundamental component to success is looking for teachers and mentors and absorbing as much as you can from them, the good and the bad, uh, because you can learn as much from a great mentor in terms of what they do well, uh, and you can also learn from the mistakes they make or have made in their life and adjust your path accordingly. Well, um, I am uh, so proud to count you as a client. I'm even more proud to count you as um, a teacher and um, most proud to count you as um, as close a friend as I've ever had. And so thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you for having me, Bruce. And the feeling is absolutely mutual. We'll be going on hiatus for the end of 2020, and we'll be back January 5th, 2021 with a new episode. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.